1: My name's Maria, and I'm uh, tuning in uh, from, currently from my lab in Massachusetts. I'm an undergrad over here, originally from Ukraine. And I guess I'm representing a minority, as you like to say, of uh, your audience, a young female. Um, yeah, and I'm currently listening to podcasts as I'm processing some of the data we just collected earlier today on um, movement and synchrony in humans. And we're looking at the connection between deep muscles and the surface muscles, as well as looking at our body as a whole and trying to see how uh, small tweaks in one part of our body affect our movements overall. And I don't know, I guess your podcast and your approach to thinking really inspired me to start this research in the first place. Um, Because I managed to find... uh, great mentor um, who shares a lot of my beliefs as well as supports me um, intellectually and together we're trying to deconstruct how we can get back essentially how we can get back to moving freely and efficiently uh, like we did back in our hunter-gatherer days and it's very inspiring to hear how different guests you invite to the podcast um Sort of do the same thing, but in their own uh, pockets of nature and science. So I really appreciate your podcast, and it keeps me company um, when I'm processing my data, when I'm going for walks, and uh, I share it with as many people as I can when I get a chance. So thanks you, and thanks to your audience for tuning in and talking on Reddit.
2: Thank you so much, Maria so cool to know you're out there analyzing data listening to the podcast always blows my mind to uh to get a taste for all the different things that people are doing while they're listening to this i am sitting in a hammock one of my favorite hammocks it's like a tie-dye thing uh it's an e m o eagles nest e n o eagles nest hammock it's double sized it's awesome I travel with it. I've got it up here in Kopayam on this terrace I'm sitting on overlooking the jungle about 20 steps away from the beach. There's nobody here. It's a very weird situation, best of times, worst of times kind of thing where, as a traveler, it's really awesome to be in Thailand right now because there are almost no tourists. Um, but for the Thai people who live on tourism, it's tough times. So yeah, strange, this sort of double edged sword situation that seems to be everywhere in our world. Um, speaking of data research and so on, uh, this episode is brought to you by OMG. Yes. I mentioned them on a previous episode, uh, they're sponsoring two episodes a month for the next few months, so you'll hear me talk about them a bit. It's a website um, that is awesome. It's uh, devoted to women's sexual pleasure at this point. Uh, they're gonna be introducing uh, episodes about men's sexual pleasure and upcoming uh, iterations, but at the moment, omgyes.com is a website devoted to women's sexual pleasure And they've done a lot of analyzing of data themselves in partnership with Indiana University and the Kinsey Institute. Um, The researchers have asked tens of thousands of women, what was the one discovery you've made that really made your pleasure better? Then they found patterns in these discoveries. They organized it all into a tasteful, remarkably open and honest website, omgyes.com. I really encourage you to check it out. It's fascinating. It's uh, it's the way sexuality should be treated. It's uh, a place to learn a lot. It's awesome. It's tasteful. It's not porny. It's just cool. It's intelligent. And um, yeah, I really like it. I wouldn't recommend it to you if I didn't. OMGS.com and uh, forward slash Chris Ryan, and you get 10% off. It's a one-time purchase. It's not a subscription thing. So uh, once you purchase access, you've got access forever and ever. Uh, This episode is with my buddy Timo, Timoteo, also known as Tim. Tim is uh, an awesome guy. He's a really interesting cat. He's a former Mormon. He was raised as a Mormon. He left the Mormon church, um, for a lot of reasons, but a big part of it was their sort of antiquated take on sexuality. Um, Tim's got some interesting sexual energy or, or, I don't know, sexual energy is probably the wrong way to put it, but he's got two brothers who are gay, um, and, uh, When Tim saw the way they were treated in the church, he decided that uh, he'd had enough. And he became a political consultant in Seattle who helped lead the reform of marijuana laws in Washington. Quite interesting. He uh, worked later for a place called, or he actually founded uh, a business, Crisis Communications, that was hired to represent the nursing home where the first COVID death in America happened. You probably remember this just outside of Seattle. um, There was a nursing home where COVID spread and in this very early days, and they were blamed. The government basically said, oh, it's because this nursing home isn't, um, instituting the best practices and they're not doing what they should be doing and that's why people are getting it it has nothing to do with this virus being incredibly contagious and about to spread all over the world no no this is this is just a bad nursing home and then the same thing happened with cruise ships and tim was at the heart of that tim was the face of the company who's talking to tv reporters and 60 minutes and all this kind of stuff Uh, So he did that for a while. Talk about a pressure cooker job. And then he quit that uh, and um, he's been on a motorcycle trip since 2017. So I guess he sort of flew back to to deal with this shitstorm. But he left uh, in early 2017 on a motorcycle intending to stop for a month in different places on the way to Tierra del Fuego at the southern tip of South America Uh, He spent a year going through Mexico, stopping in various places, and then he stopped in Antigua, Guatemala, and stumbled upon this beautiful courtyard garden situation there and ended up talking to the owner and uh, renting it long-term and setting up an Airbnb, and he's been living there ever since, uh, about four years. So I was in Guatemala, and I posted something, on instagram and tim was like hey dude you're in guatemala i live here now and i had no idea i hadn't been in touch with him for a while i knew he was on the motorcycle trip but i didn't know he had settled for a bit and um so it was really great it was the high point of our time in guatemala we ended up hanging out with tim and renewing and and deepening our friendship with him and um yeah, he's he's a special guy. In fact, he's on his way to Thailand, so he'll be here uh, in a week or so, I hope, barring global collapse, which is always uh, an addendum you add to anything these days, strangely. Um, but anyway, we talk about all those experiences and um, some work that Tim's been doing. He's very interested in the creation of community and trying to um, you know give a lot of serious thought to how we're gonna move forward through the crises that we're facing and uh, how we can design resilient um, communities based on justice and respect and and mutual cooperation and so he's been looking a lot at, Questions of tribalism and and group identity and um, sort of how to intentionally um, design a a social system, if that makes sense. Um, So I guess you can say he's an aspiring cult founder or something. Um, Anyway, Timoteo, Tim, interesting cat. I'm going to play you out with one of my all-time favorite songs It's sung by Eddie Vedder. It's from the soundtrack to Into the Wild. Seemed apropos to this episode. It's called Society. Thanks for listening, everybody.
3: Hope you're not lonely without me, society, crazy and deep, hope you're not lonely without me. society crazy indeed. I hope you're not lonely.
2: All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am here in the living room of my friend, Timo. Why is it Timo? Is there just no Tim in Spanish?
4: I have found that the little Mayan girls, and I I have a few that I take care of and... They they struggle saying Tim, and Timo's easier for them. Because so, I would say Timoteo, and they say Timo. Yeah.
2: Uh, as a, you know. Oh, so. okay. So it's short for Timoteo, yeah, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. So we have a funny history. Uh, I met Tim in Seattle, and we're still not sure how. It had something to do with a blog about a man bag, we think. Um, but anyway, we became friends uh, 10 years ago. Probably 10 eight, years. Eight, nine, something, pushing 10 and uh we've been in touch sporadically since then and last thing i remember was you said something about you were cruising around on a motorcycle and camping
4: was that this summer it was was during covid right while i was trapped i couldn't get back to guatemala so right so i bought the bike and did a loop loop and a half about around the u.s and that
2: was this past summer summer. okay right so i was out in the van it was a year ago so it was the previous summer 2020 okay In any case, I was out in the van and I remember saying, yeah, let's get together. We're in wherever the fuck we were. And then I think we didn't hear from you. And you ended up cruising through Mexico on your motorcycle. Anyway, sort of lost touch. And then uh, I got to Guatemala six weeks ago and posted something from Lake Atilan. And Tim reached out and said, hey, what the fuck? You're in Guatemala. I live here. And I was like, what? You live here? And it turned out we had stayed in a hotel like two doors from here for a few days, but didn't know you were here and didn't run into you. Um, but anyway, we've been, we've been hanging out ever since. So it's one of those serendipitous re-encounters on the road. Yeah, it's been a nice month. It's been, it's a, been nice a lot month. of fun. Yeah. So Tim and I recorded a podcast early on, episode, what was it, 34, 5, 6, Four, somewhere something. in there? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I looked it up recently, but I forget exactly. But if you want to hear our first uh, episode,
4: go back in the archives to episode. Just look for Tim. Uh, It'll be, you know, I I need to go back and listen to it, too, because I actually feel like I'm a really different person now.
2: Yeah, well, that's why I wanted to do this. You know, it's been 10 years or whatever, and uh, you look the same, but... You've been through a lot. A lot of shit's gone down. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. What are some of the most uh,
4: salient changes in your life over the last decade? Uh, you know, I think after you left, I got even deeper into Seattle politics and uh, ended up working for a couple years for one of the mayors up there as the council liaison. And just the process of all the changes Seattle was going through and... Working in politics for twenty years, it sort of burnt me out on the city, mm. and uh, and the
2: and previously you had been involved in the marijuana legalization movement, strip clubs, strip clubs, <laughs> politically,
4: uh, politically, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah like you, I, you were taking on some interesting, very progressive. I, I sort of causes. became known as the the consultant who would run the difficult. Uh, political campaigns including some candidates that were difficult and uh, um, yeah and I I thoroughly enjoyed it Uh, I then started to do uh, the last couple years I was in Seattle I founded a firm with two others doing crisis communications and that is mostly remote work and that's what allowed me to step out of uh, being in Seattle full time so I left the very first first of January uh, 2017 with the plan of living in a new city every month for a year. To, or No, every month until I got to the southern tip of Argentina. Mm. And I did that for a year in Mexico. Landed in Antigua with really... In fact, you gave me my whole list of things to do in Antigua. I said I was going and you had a friend write me some a whole list of recommendations. I huh. uh, wonder who that was. But then I landed in this garden, actually, right. and so fell in love with it. Uh, that that changed all my plans and i've been here for just over four years right so
2: little shout out to people who might want to come to antigua it's a unesco world heritage site it's awesome cobbled stone streets so the cars go very slowly it kind of feels like almost a pedestrian kind of yeah. small city um, beautiful ruins all over the place of spanish churches Um, uh, convents and monasteries because this was the capital of Central America under the Spanish and the town kept getting destroyed by earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and then they'd build it up again so you've got these layers of history here and um, Tim's got an Airbnb thing here. What's the
4: website? Uh, if you go to antiguabnb.com, right, that'll uh, it'll will take you it. straight to all my units. Yeah. yeah,
2: and they're all sort of around this the largest courtyard in Antigua, so yeah. it's it's very spacious and beautiful. I and mean, we're not doing this as an advertisement, right. but no. if someone's listening to this and they yeah. like, want to be like, I'm going to Antigua, I want to meet that dude, it sounds great. Yeah, um, so anyway, the other thing like we should mention because I think it informs a lot of, um, you know, what you do in life, uh, and we talked about it a lot in the first episode. We don't need to talk about it uh, now if whatever. Um, but you grew up as a Mormon. Correct. So it's funny that you would be leading the charge politically to liberate or de- liberalize the strip club laws in Seattle and marijuana and all that. And, and, Part, I mean, obviously, you're very smart and adept, and you got all the content. But also, part of it is you just look so unbohemian, <laughs> you know, because you've got that trustworthy Mormon sure. visage sure. that probably plays to your advantage in those yeah, political I, conversations. It, it,
4: you know, and to be honest, that makes people laugh a bit. But I ran those campaigns in Seattle for marijuana, and I don't particularly enjoy marijuana. But for me, it was a it was a first salvo in taking down the war on drugs. And right. I continued doing work in that direction. But it helped that I wasn't a pothead, so to speak. Right. In fact, we sort of had to keep a distance from that to be able to win that campaign in Washington. And uh, so I played my part. Right. right. Uh, you keep strip clubs at an arm's length as well? Yeah, that was a fun campaign, actually. <laughs> Seattle had tried to outlaw the three remaining strip clubs that existed in Seattle. The city council had passed a law... And just taking the temperature of the city, it felt like everybody thought, what the fuck? Why are you, you know, we're a major metropolitan area. Right. So I ran a referendum and got the three strip clubs to contribute to a campaign. And, and we won by like 65% and, huh. and repealed the city council's laws. But just you, to predict those three or to open it up to competition? Well, it's still so... They've really locked zoning down. Zoning becomes the tool by which mm-hmm. they outlaw strip clubs. And zoning hasn't really eased up much since then. So I, I don't think there's been any influx of new clubs. It's, mm-hmm. it's still on the periphery of Seattle. There's some in little towns that have less restrictions. But, right. you know, people think of Seattle as this highly liberal place. Yeah. But there's a weird political dynamic there because there's certain ways in which it could be very conservative, too. So...
2: Is that historical, or is that is that coming out of all the big money that's come up there in the last couple of decades? All the Microsoft money, the Boeing money?
4: Uh, you know, there's that, uh, but I'm not sure that those took it more conservative. I think there's sort of this Nordic heritage. A lot of Nordic immigrants huh. early on right. set a certain tone of uh, what's right and proper. But wasn't Seattle like a wild... Gateway to the
2: Yukon. Sure, there
4: was that part of it
2: too. I remember reading there was some woman who was a very important part of Seattle history who ran, who had a brothel. Gypsy Lee yeah, Rose. Like yeah, 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 And she like didn't she was she mayor or something that she rose to? No,
4: no pun she wasn't mayor. But they had a mayor, a female mayor, like early in the 1900s, uh-huh. and. uh
2: but th- that woman I'm thinking of, I, I don't remember the story, but there was, I remember she ran a brothel and they tried to, you know, outlaw the, and she instead got into politics and took power and outmaneuvered everybody and ended up being this kind of like really important figure in the yeah. history of Seattle.
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I so think there's a couple of movies about her. Maybe I'll have to go back and see them. Mm, so. Yeah. Anyway, so you were doing that. Then you started this uh, crisis uh, communications. communications. Uh-huh. I, I asked you about this the other day. I remember I know, maybe we were watching football or something, and I said, "So what? You 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 uh, told people how to spin bad news, and you had an interesting response to that."
4: Yeah, everybody thinks that's what we do. In fact, our clients always think that we're coming in to help them spin. And because human nature is the way it is, everybody wants to deflect blame. That's the first human response that everybody goes through. Mm. And our job, what we really see our job is holding their hand while they, while they tell the truth. And, mm. and we often tell those clients that the public will forgive a fuck-up, but they won't forgive a cover-up. Mm. You know, so if you come to Cause, people- Because that shows intent. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, premeditation. I mean, and, and people that. understand that things happen right and if you if you come to people open and honest um it resonates with people mm. and uh so we spend most of our time helping them tell the truth in the best way possible but always telling the truth we we never want our clients to be surprised by anything else that comes out we want them to be seen as the leading authority and whatever you know and and maybe we can discuss how what I did last year um yeah So February, the last day of February uh, 2020, I got a phone call sitting here in this room in Antigua, Guatemala, and it was the nursing home just outside of Seattle where the very first COVID uh, death occurred. And it became immediately apparent that they had no capability of managing global news. They had about 40 satellite trucks outside of their Facility in those mm. first weeks, so I got on a plane within I think six to eight hours of that phone call, went to Seattle and ended up uh, being the face of that company for the for eight months. They have two hundred eight nursing homes across the nation, and and being part of the very first one threw me right in the center of discussions with the Trump administration and all the major media, and uh, it really gave me a, what I think is a pretty unique perspective on the way things were actually happening uh in that whole crisis but that was fascinating
2: so what did you what did you learn what did you
4: see well i often tell so do you know how we grow up watching these pandemic movies and the first thing you see are all the vans swoop in and the men in suits come out and and the government takes control and Hmm. takes over it was exactly the opposite no government agency, including our local government agencies, wanted anything to do with that facility. Nobody came to help. Nobody, everybody wanted to blame us, from the King County executive to the governor of Washington. Blame you for what? Like a it bad was our patient management? Yeah, it was our fault that this had spread in our facility. <sighs> it's not funny? It's, it's really funny. And then, but even the media, the media, I think, well... I'll say this and then I'll tell you what I think should have happened but the media became complicit in the government spin right so every story you saw for months and months if there was a story about a nursing home ours was mentioned in that story and it was always mentioned so within two days of that happening we we lost 37 people died in two weeks within the first two days uh, what's called uh, CMS that oversees the regulation of nursing homes across the country. They were in there not to help, not to bring more doctors and nurses, not to provide more PPE, but to look for ways in which we might have failed our, right. our patients. So they they took, we calculated something like 600 man hours managing them in that first week of the crisis. And and so they, they came out and immediately, they fined us $611,000. It was a big story, blah, 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 blah. But that became the media spin from then on. So for example, the New York Times, I remember this, I had this argument with the New York Times reporter. The first thing, and, and all the reporters would say, so what did you do wrong? And they were convinced <laughs> that we had fucked this up. Right. It became right. our fault. Right? right. So we had that $611,000 fine and we appealed it. And some eight, nine months later, uh, we won that appeal. Everything got thrown out. Sure, because by then... Everyone understood it. It it wasn't your fault. It was spreading everywhere. But the point is, I couldn't get a single news outlet to run that story that we had been exonerated. you won the
2: appeal. I mean,
4: I went back to the New York Times. I went back to... The Washington Post was terrible. Mm. And I didn't... I mean, they were taking... Trump's side essentially because Trump had spun it to blame the nursing homes because it's not our fault those nursing homes right and people look at a big chain of nursing homes which we were but you know they're not really equipped but anyway we could go on and on about this there was a it was just an interesting time and what for our little firm for that first three days or first I'm sorry three weeks we were managing all the nursing homes all the crisis for nursing homes and the cruise lines. Like we had both accounts. So we were right in the center of it. Are you
2: guys, is your firm different? I mean, the approach you, you just outlined that, you know, that you're holding someone's hand while they tell the truth. And is that an unusual
4: approach to crisis management? Well, you know, there are not a lot of firms that specifically focus on it. A lot of PR agencies might have a a person or two that do it mm. and some legal teams will do it inside of company as well and that's actually horrible like our biggest fight is always with internal legal teams who right who never want us to say anything right because they're trying to cover their right. ass and, right. and avoid liability right, right, right so i don't know that we're different right. there's just not a lot of us out there huh. um what's the name of the firm by the way sound council crisis Communications. sound council crisis S- it's SoundCounselCrisis.com. Mm. So it's, it's fascinating work. Uh, we decided this week I had, like I had a rapper once, uh, Wale, I think is his name. Um, we got a phone call from a restaurant. And Wale uh, was an up and coming rapper at the time. And I think he had maybe three million Instagram or Twitter followers. And, and after he, he tweets out, this restaurant is racist they blah 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 they did x y and z and they're racist and don't go and this restaurant calls us and and we go in and um they could not figure out like they had no memory of who he was or when he might have been in there or anything but you know he's tweeting this to his followers they're getting death threats they're getting people the police had to come post uh squad car out and about three days later we back channel with wally Turns out he named the wrong restaurant. He would got it completely wrong. So How would you handle that? Uh, so we put out the release and we talked to the local media. But again, it's one of those things that after the fact, the media is never right. really keen to yeah. clean up the story at the end. So I, if anyone's interested in this, I spent nine months working with 60 Minutes who, who started talking to me uh, in that first week and didn't run a story on a, for nine more months. And it's, to me, the best, it's the best summation of everything that happened. You mm-hmm. know, because they took their time, they're one of the right. few news outlets still that that take their time. And and I gotta say, it was it's a conservative company I was doing work for and they were terrified of what 60 Minutes might do to them because they were gun-shy at this point. And yeah. uh, it turned out to be one of the better stories on, I think, not just for us, but telling what really happened. So right. we'll close this by me saying this. Here's, if I had been president, having seen what I've seen, here's what I would have done. I would have created a protective bubble around all the nursing homes in the country. I would have given, you know, we furloughed nurses and doctors. I would have sent them all to the nursing homes. I would have, um, we would have isolated those nursing homes. And by doing that, I think you could have, more easily manage the whole process. But you left by leaving it wide open, by making nursing homes feel shame and fear that they're going to be fined and punished by for having COVID, right? You know, anyway, that's enough of that. But at some point we could transition into how that also plays into my later project and the way yeah. that we're warehousing are elderly now right you know of course this is if there's a virus or a pandemic because we wear our house our elderly it's going to spread like wildfire through those through those facilities right and it speaks to the to the disintegration of of community right and you see that in so many different
2: places right i, I mean that manifests in mono-crop agriculture. Sure. Right? Diversity. In, right. Diversity is strength. Right. And, and I remember reading a book called One River a long time ago about Richard Evans Schultes. Uh, it's written by Wade Davis. It's a great book. Um, but one of the things that he points out in that book is that all the rubber plantations in the world are one cloned rubber plant, and that natural rubber is essential. It's in airplane tires because it won't burst on the high friction when they land. Yeah. They can't use artificial rubber, um, and it's also in the insulation in uh, a lot of wiring, yeah. like important wiring, right? So if we lose that rubber, we're in big trouble. Like the whole no more airline industry. No, no more electronics. <laughs> like the whole thing goes down, right? Yeah. Like it's a big problem. But it's all one plant. Yeah. One plant everywhere, Malaysia, where, wherever the the so if thing a disease is. Hits that specific one strain, fungal thing, and yeah. whoop, yeah. it's over. It's so stupid yeah. the the way we sort of you know cultivate uh, our vulnerability. It's it's really weird. Put a bunch of kids together in school, all the you know little kids together, and of course that you know everyone's sick. They're all sick. Of course they yeah. are. They're all together. They're all at the same immunocom compromised age right yeah um but i wanted to say like before we leave the the that experience you had it's just so interesting to see how almost like on a national level and institutional level between the government and you know the the management of the nursing homes and all that these very um human Responses play out like you you started by saying the first response any human has is denial right. and it wasn't my fault I didn't do it right no mommy it wasn't me you know like that goes so back into our consciousness and then to watch it play out nationally right trump saying hey it's not my problem i I don't know it's not not states have to deal with that or you know someone else or it's the china oh it's the china syndrome and you know all this it's just all this deflection and blame it's like you don't know if it's a seven-year-old or it's a government
4: and and part of what happened even on the local level the county and the state they have so cut the public health budget yeah over the last few decades that to be honest they simply didn't have a way to respond to the pandemic. So those and vans so, with
2: the guys in hazmat Those don't, so exist, don't exist. Yeah, and so, only in movies. So
4: of course they're going to deflect at that point because they've right. got nothing else to do, right. right? So, you know, they were saying that this corporation should have been able, you know, they're big enough that they should have been able to deal with this. The CDC didn't even give us guidelines until a week after... Uh, right. That happened. Right. So, and then those guidelines kept changing. But, yeah, right. the government and, you, you know, in a, in an interesting way, they're one of the first clients who I ended up having to legitimately defend as not being culpable for COVID. Right. Like, right. So they're ones in which we weren't trying to spin it per se, but we were just underwater with, you know. And, and I've sort of learned, too, that I think there's a latent um, – What's the word? We feel bad about nursing homes. And uh, if you put your parent in a nursing home, right? instead of feeling bad that you put your parent in a nursing home, right. you're going to blame the nursing home. Right? It's always the nursing home fucking up. How could you treat up. my father this way? Right, exactly. Not how could
2: I send my father off to a nursing home.
5: Yeah.
4: You know, we had families coming and yelling at us. You know, Because it's brand new, everyone's yelling at us all the time. Hijack! You can go out on the web, actually, and see my... All my daily press conferences that that I did, and with families, and uh, watch Tim Age on YouTube. <laughs> but we would always say to them, "Look, you are free at any point to take your parent home. Right? We're not locking them in here. You could take care of them, and nobody, you know, nobody wanted to do that. Sure. And, and I'm even talking about those people inside the facility who hadn't yet gotten COVID. Yeah. Right. We had isolated them." And we're having to deal with families who are angry at us. And we're saying, if you don't think they're safe here, take them home. And, uh, and we would have appreciated that. But families didn't want to.
2: There's a thing in Spain. I remember when I was working with a lot of Spanish doctors. And they said that, um, you know, everyone in Spain takes August off, right? That's a national holiday. And the whole country sort of shuts down. It's the same all over Europe. Um, but the hospitals in Spain get packed in August because lots of families who have a senior living with them will say, OK, oh, Grandpa, you're not feeling well. It's an easy way
4: to put them. They, they go to the hospital. Go resort. to the hospital for a, for a month <laughs> while we go to Sardinia, wow.
2: you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's an interesting situation. Yeah. I don't know what what uh, I, I mean, did that. What am I trying to say? It's, I imagine that being so high stress a situation that you would have had to develop new defense mechanisms to keep your shit together.
4: Well, to be honest, this is why I do this job. Is I, yeah, I'm sure there's a part of your career where you feel like you're right in your group, you're right in the lane of what you do, hmm. and this is what this was like being in the Super Bowl of of what I do for a career right and and what animates me is I have a sometimes I forget that I've been doing you know and I I sort of took this skill set out of my work in politics you know it's politics is crisis 24-7 but I feel a real joy when I'm able to bring a skill set that I have to bear on a situation where it's needed right and uh, so what is your skill set that you
2: bring what's unique about your approach to this
4: you know, it's funny, I, I, I think it, if, if we go back in my history, you know, I think this starts from, you know, as a Mormon, I didn't grow up in Utah. I didn't grow up in the center of Mormonism. There were 10 kids in my high school of 1200 kids that were Mormon. Mm-hmm. And I was certainly made to feel as an outsider. And especially in my little town of Issaquah, Washington, was the publishing center for the most prolific anti-mormon author and he would make movies and write these books and then he Mm. would go tour all the little all the churches in the area because most of the attack was from protestant christians right Mm. and he would he would show these movies to all my friends you know and their pastors would talk about how evil mormons are and i'm fourth fifth sixth seventh grade having to be an apologist for my religion being called a devil worshiper on the playground i had kids in my neighborhood who were forbidden to play with me right and and i think in an early age that like having to remain calm as someone's calling you a devil worshiper and and you're you know and that's when you're one of ten kids in a school and right. you know it's I had to grow some thick skin. You want to de-escalate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was early training for my political work. And then political work just took me. Uh, and again, because I was doing unpopular issues. Um, I, I just have developed a way uh, to, to stay calm in a situation. To recognize, to sort of think ahead. Um, anyway, it's, 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 hard, you know, and I was about to say, sometimes I forget how much experience i have in this and i think well this should be easy everyone should be able to do that yeah. like it's but it's you know there's moments when and that covid was a moment which i knew uh they just didn't have the skill set to do it right you know they'll they'll be listeners here i'm sure it it became really popular to demonize the nursing homes and and there will be listeners here who think still that those dirty nursing homes and who don't pay their nurses enough and blah blah blah, blah, blah. but it one, for me, it was like strip clubs. They're an unpopular client that I had to come in and help. And uh, But there's also, you know, there's, there's always deeper stories to some of the, you know, do n- nurses not make enough taking care of our elderly? Yeah, but it's not because... It's not because families are overpaying the nursing homes and the nursing homes don't want to pay their nurses. It's because we just don't invest a lot of money in elder care, you know, right. from the government investing money in it and from families themselves investing money in it. Again, it's just this, it's a weird industry um, because I, as much as I gained from working at it, it's, I kind mm-hmm. of think it's a national shame the degree to which we warehouse the elderly like that. I have
2: a friend, Richard Schweid, who recently published a book called The Caring Class uh, about home health care workers and nursing home workers. And, uh, you know, he's coming at it, obviously, from a a different perspective, but he has exactly the same conclusion that it's a national shame that we've... Allowed this, like so much else, to become a business decision, right? Rather than a national identity decision, like you know, we are a country who takes care of our right. elders. We're a country who takes care of our children. We're a country who takes care of our veterans. I mean, the fact that the first responders to nine eleven are still fighting Congress to try to get sure. them to cover healthcare costs that obviously came from them rushing in to save lives yeah. is just like. It's absurd. And you know, you and I are both old enough to have learned that lesson over and over again, you know. But it it really kills me when I talk to someone some young person who's like, you know, I joined the army after nine because I wanted to go and, you know, defend the country and defend freedom and and then you know and then they abandoned me when I got back. You yeah. Know? Like, dude, they were doing that in Vietnam, they were doing that in Korea, they were doing yeah. that in World War One. There was a march on the White House of World War One veterans demanding the money that had been promised to them when they went over and fucking lost their legs and shit. It's just
4: well pathetic. And, and we'll maybe we'll get into, it, but you know, this sort of the point of Sebastian Younger's book Tribe, right? Right. This, how, how that plays out?
2: Right. So, how is that playing out in your life? I mean, you you talked about being isolated by being a Mormon kid in a place where there weren't a lot of Mormons and being demonized by this guy going around and sort of developing a bit of a shell and a bit of a private world to
4: keep yourself safe. Well, you know, it's sort of a weird dynamic. Even though there were only 10 kids, there's something about Mormon kids who... We got so much... So Mormonism is not run by a pastor right it's lay run so when you're a Mormon you're teaching classes and you're giving this talks and speeches on Sundays, and and it's a very hands-on it teaches you a lot and there's a thing by the time those 10 of us got up to uh, high school one of them was our senior class president Uh, I was athletically active and so being a part of a group even though we felt attacked we were still a part of a group and and you almost every group does this you almost feel emboldened by the ta- attacks that come to you mm. and within our group uh, in certain ways that actually what it taught me to to realize that I'm not normal I'm on the outside and then to build a life independent of that but also you really learn to lean on your group your tribe mm. and 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 in my experience, that's, uh, in fact, I would say, and we'll talk more, but because tribalism has become a big issue for me, religion is really the last bastion of tribalism that we practice, that anybody's encouraged in any way to join, it seems to me, in Western culture. Um, It's sort of a holdout, even though, you know, as you know, I left the church at 26 and no longer practice and have my own problems with it. But but that experience, I think, has informed a lot of where I'm at now.
2: Right. I was interviewing uh, Blake. Uh, right. We're chatting. I uh, haven't released that episode yet, but another former Mormon. And um, he talked about how even though he's no longer in the church and, and doesn't believe the teachings of the church, being raised within it, any church, um kind of forms the architecture of your mind in, in a way. Sure. So it's like the design of the house. You can change the furniture you can right. You know, say, no, no, this bedroom's an office now, but you're not, you can't really knock down the walls and move the windows it's, sure. it's the way it is yeah. Do you feel that way? Is there like a <laughs>
4: yeah, but I've also lasting qualities? And we've had some conversations around this. I've also attributed a lot of that even to pre-Mormonism to Junger's archetypes and mythologies that we carry within our, you know, and I think oh, Jung, religion. Jung, Jung I'm no, sorry. No, Junger. <laughs> he's he's I was, the tribe. Sebastian Junger. Sebastian Jung. Carl Jung. Carl Gustav say. Junger. Um, um, yeah. And so, but yeah, certainly, I mean, it, it very much informed who I am mm. and made me, you know, for example, again. I served a Mormon mission for two years in which for 12 hours a day I'm knocking on doors and being spat on and rocks thrown at me and called all sorts of names, but had to keep going and knocking on those doors and, uh, and again, feeling like the outsider. But I, I always tell people one of the greatest things I took from Mormonism is that I learned to speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. You know, I served in Puerto Rico, in Puerto Rico and, right. uh, you know, so there's things like that. You know, think about the, I think a lot about the impact that had on me as a, horny 19 to 21 year old who was taken out of that world for two years and just the experience of learning to sort of for you know control my libido right Mm. how many kids at 18 19 20 years ever even have an experience like that and i uh, there's things about that i take away that i i think i gained some positive aspects in my life even though i no longer agree with uh, the philosophy of Mormonism.
2: Yeah, sending a 19-year-old horny 19-year-old dude to Puerto Rico of all places. I mean, I had my first girlfriend oh, was Puerto but, Rican and I'm
4: telling you it was there were some but, moments <laughs> there were some moments. He's like, I'm going to go work for a strip clubs. But, you know, what's interesting and not to get well, we're going to get personal so. What's interesting is the, look, I fault. was a red-blooded kid uh-huh. and I yeah, you were and, an athlete you were and a I dated all non-Mormon uh, girls before I right. you know um, this speaks to the power of religious belief I think in those two years I masturbated once in Puerto Rico in the two years I was a missionary because of the power of the influence of whatever you know the teachings yeah. and the whole structure of it like, so you were
2: having wet dreams pretty regularly sure,
4: absolutely those are amazing, huh? Yeah. You've got to learn to appreciate
2: them. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know how many people want to hear our, our masturbatory history. But, <laughs> yeah. but there, I didn't figure out how to masturbate till pretty late in the game. And so I was having wet dreams for, I don't know, six months or something. And I still remember that was probably the most intense sexual oh, yeah. really, uh, experiences of my life just being asleep yeah. while it happens it's like your brain is free to go anywhere yeah and yeah. uh it, yeah it's it's there, there's zero inhibition you're just by definition you're in a in a flow state right <laughs> so to speak yeah yeah it was
4: pretty uh those were the days but it's a big sacrifice you gotta like is yeah but but sometimes i wonder if and i'm not i I would never want my children to be mormon and serve a mormon mission again but sometimes i wonder you know that experience of day to day 12 hours a day for two years knocking on doors and yeah and and learning languages and interacting being on your own in communities in which there's nobody else around and i mean that's a lot of experience discipline self-confidence Things that it gave me uh, that I don't think my children have gotten from anything. So when you then years later,
2: when you left the church, did that undercut? The value of any of those lessons that you would learn, that self reliance, that all all that kind of stuff?
4: Well, it's funny. I think I just, I think I took all the good without recognizing that it had given me this good and Uh and without attributing it back to the church. Right. And in fact, I think this is a larger issue. You know, I I became a hardcore leftist liberal atheist in Seattle for, you know, decades And, uh, and just, and and all the attendant beliefs that come with being that, and uh, at the point I'm at now, I do think we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater in certain ways mm-hmm. in our rejection of religion because right. some of these things predate religion. You know, in, sure. in fact, that's why I get back to tribalism. So for me, and and we'll, I guess I'll say this now. I I'm working on a project now in which I believe we should return uh, to living in committed community of about the size of 150 people, and. Um, but but prior to religion, prior to the separation of religion and politics, those things just resided as one uh, within your small group. It was the belief system mm. and the cultural practices that helped sustain your group. And there was no separation of those things. And so I think some of those things even predate religion. But when they came into religion and when we rejected religion, you know, we threw out ideas such as holding something sacred. Right. Uh, Things like ritual, ritualistic practices of your values, right? Um, Things that I still think could be valuable if we learned how to use them. Uh, Because I think they're agnostic to the philosophy that uses them. Right. I agree. I keep thinking, you know, you've mentioned Sebastian Junger earlier.
2: I keep thinking about How he locates the expression of those things within a military squad, right? Right. So you can say, okay, this war was stupid. It was unjust. A lot of people died for nothing. We destroyed the infrastructure of this country for no fucking good reason. But I still love those dudes. Right. They saved my ass and I saved theirs. And there's something eternally valuable about that experience and or the discipline of, of learning to do whatever it was, learning the language, and you know, learning to survive in the mountains, and right. learning to fly that helicopter, and like, yes, the end goal or the structure within which that experience happened was corrupt and ridiculous, but that doesn't invalidate the
4: experience, right? Or the knowledge that was gained, right? And again, exactly. So it could be in a military setting, or a religious setting, or a sports team, or right. anything in which you're committed uh to certain principles that you work together on, I think is going to produce it's 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 getting back to Jung's argument. I think this is natural to the human
2: No, I agree. And it's unavoidable. So yes, if we shut down the religion and we say, oh religion's all bullshit, no religion, that stuff doesn't go away. That yearning for belonging doesn't go away. It expresses itself in destructive chaotic ways you join a fucking the crips or the bloods sure or you're like you know or yeah you, some vehemence of 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 aligning yourself with some online identity group or a- something.
4: absolutely i i think our anger politics is a is an outgrowth of that right but but more than anything i've come to believe that we're just completely missing out on the power we could be generating in our own lives to our to our own lives ends not globally right. um, but the power that exists when you align yourself in a group and the problem I I have I think we have and hence my project is I just don't think we don't have those models anymore uh, people don't know how to form those groups and as I've done the research there are very specific things that build trust in a group that we could bring back in certain ways to let groups uh, do that in our in our radically individualist hmm. world and that's part of the problem is that all of our forms of community uh, were structured were built pre-enlightenment right right pre before the individuals was vaulted to the forefront and so we don't really know how to do individualism the way we do it now and community right as i in fact it's funny we keep bringing up religion but i've come to recognize when people say and i used to say it I'm spiritual not religious what I finally, what it finally hit me you're saying when you say I'm spiritual not religious is you're saying I practice my spiritual values as an individual because religion is the way you come together in a group to practice those spiritual values and because we're so you know uh, allergic to that now uh, we say I'm spiritual not religious thereby guaranteeing almost that we can never practice our spiritual values or beliefs or really share them amongst ourselves it becomes a very personal thing in our individualist world i sometimes wonder if
2: the hidden agenda isn't that the and this this is a a half-baked thought here but i'm thinking about the the sort of institutionalized resistance to and and the corrosion of these groups of these sort of um, collective identities if that isn't if that doesn't play to the advantage of the corporate capitalist system that for example doesn't want multi-generational households because it's better to split people up they'll buy more shit And I'm not saying that the fucking Rothschilds are sitting around coming up with a plot. It just systems maximize conditions that feed back into the system in a beneficial way, right? So it makes more sense in a post-apocalyptic capitalist world that we live in that people are fragmented. People live alone. People think alone. People see others as the enemy, not as a a source of solace or or you know c- cooperation like i always i always reference this fucking commercial like a good neighbor state farm is there yeah, right it always cracks me up yeah like i like want the, the ways, neighbor i right. don't want i don't want to pay you you fucking company that'll probably not come through i want the neighbor and but right. we make everything we, we drain
4: everything out of society that isn't monetizable see i would go i just in writing, I'm writing a book right now uh, that outlines my project, and I just finished writing this whole section in which I said I'm a microcosm of the Enlightenment theory, and I would go back. Uh, sure, the corporations do this, but this started. This radical individualism started out of very left-leaning leftist thinkers, and and one of the things it has done is consistently attack tribalism to where we all recognize now that you could say oh tribalism you know they just were practicing. trump and his followers are tribal and i mean we all instinctively <clears throat> it's like we all attack tribe now right but at the same time you say tribe to an individual and there's something inside that also calls people right but i i think it's a it's just an out it's a natural outgrowth of yeah the enlightenment theory was a was a i think an appropriate response to overly power authoritarian community. And mm. and I think in certain ways, we've played it. And I, I, in in this part of the book I wrote, I think I'm the perfect example, if the Enlightenment thinkers could come see me now, that I'm living out, you know, I'm a radical, I'm here by myself and you've been to my cabin up in the mountains and I go and I spend weeks at a time up there sometimes writing on my own I've been in community, but I've left it all. I've worked in politics. I've had that free speech that all the Enlightenment thinkers, most of them never had, right? And, and I was sitting and I realized, like, I'm Enlightenment thinkers' wet dream in a certain way. I'm the individual who's, who's been free and been able to express and do all these things in my life. But from this vantage point that they didn't have, uh, there's problems with it. Right. The the isolation, isolation and 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 lack of community, lack of belonging. So mm. I'm convinced that you know, and I don't mean this in some universal sense because clearly every individual is different, and that's part of being a radical I'm individual. Not. Yeah, you're exactly the same. <laughs> but I think we need being and belonging, is what I call yeah. it. Like I think those are two parts yeah. of us that um, we yearn for. Yeah. Um, are fact, there examples of, of tribal?
2: Uh, because every time I think about the tribal identity and the tribal group and all that, there's
4: the in-group and the out-group, right? So you're one of us; you're not one of them. But let's let's talk about that because, yeah. and let's talk about one of our favorite authors. <laughs> I say that facetiously, Steven Pinker. Right? Mm. If you read Better Angels of Our Nature, it's a complete attack on, on on tribalism, you know. And and we've been taught this is a thing that we've been taught since the Enlightenment. Tribes are going to fight. There's in-group and out-group. Well, Steven Pinker's next book is called Enlightenment Now because and he's touting all the Enlightenment theories and how great it is. But buried in that book, there's this. They did this study on uh, post-Russia, the breakup, and all these ethnic groups that live near each other and 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 anyway, they did a study and, and they came up with something like 95 percent of groups who had the potential. To be violent to each other because they had such differing beliefs, never had a problem. And, you know, and we've, you know, without, so we just hear about without doing the noble savage thing, in a right. sense, I think we've, m- many of us have come to understand that, you know, the Hobbesian view of early man just isn't right. And I, I now believe that, I think it's the exception, not the rule, that groups are always going to right. fight right that they're going to devolve you know we love our families without hating someone else's family right and and i think that's more natural than the opposite right yeah. i agree i agree i and
2: and it's interesting how strong and ubiquitous the propaganda promoting the opposite view is and it makes me think like you know if you need to tell me the same lie every day like Right. It must be pretty obvious that you're wrong. Otherwise, you'd be more relaxed about it. Right. You know, like even just calling it the enlightenment. Like, sure, are you fucking kidding
4: me? No, <laughs> like, it's all propaganda. Yeah. Right? The
2: enlightenment. Oh, so but, it was the it's... dark ages and then it was the
4: enlightenment. Oh. But like okay. you said about me and Mormonism... I think Western culture is so steeped in these ideals, like these ideals that so shaped us that it's the water we're swimming in that right. we don't even recognize right. it anymore. No, and, I agree. And so left us in Seattle, well, everything is anti-tribe, 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 blah, blah, blah. Except for the Indian tribes, of course, which right. are the only tribes that have ever existed. I think I told you once I've, I've been canceled by some people because I use the word tribe. Right. You think I'm appropriating the word tribe from from Native Americans as though... All of our ancestors didn't grow. Right. Like, we're all from tribes, right? right? Like, right. Uh, anyway.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. That's a funny thing. I, I, I also have been harassed for using the word tribe. It's like, what? You know, and then I used the word Indian, and that really put them over the edge. And I, and I had to say, like, first of all, you're a rich white lady, Giving me shit for saying Indian. Right, I know Indians, and they're like, "Yeah, call us Indians. We don't give a shit." Well,
4: my high school ended up changing. We were the Indians, oh, my high school, and oh, we, they ended up changing the name
2: to the First
4: Nations. The Eagles, <laughs> the Eagles.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't. After know. the rock band. Oh, right. right. <laughs> not, not the bird. Don't offend any birds. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, what what is this project? We've talked about. We've sort of hinted. It's you, sometimes you call
4: it a book. Sometimes you call it a project. Because it's the book you, is part of the project. Well, the book is only a, is a way to sort of introduce the project. It, the does pro- it have
2: a name yet, or, or uh, is it too
4: early? Well, it depends on which part of the project you're talking about. Yeah, so, okay. as as I jokingly said to you early on, I'm starting a cult you know, in a sense. You, me, and everyone else, man. But the idea is I'm building a framework by which any group with whatever values and beliefs they have could plug those in to help them form a more committed group. Mm. So that's one side of it. The other side is I'm actually building, plugging in my values and belief systems uh, to build, what I hope becomes my own tribe at some point. And so the book is the last, the whole project's essentially done. And the book is the last, you know, it's weird because this is how far we've gotten away from this, from these ideas of community and tribe. Like you'll understand the words I'm using, but I can't, like the way people's eyes gloss over when I talk about what used to be completely natural to humanity. And so the book is meant to, to one, Look, everyone would agree that if I say the world is fucked up, everyone agrees. But what we're tending to do in the West now is we think that the answer to that is to go farther and farther down this road of hyper individualism, to atomize ourselves more and more, that that's the answer to everything we're doing. And I've really like I look at that now as as a cultural virus that infects. <laughs> you know, I look at my friends back in Seattle uh, and some of the what I now would you know and not to minimize the importance of any of this but the stupid over contentious political fights even with you know as divided as the country is left and right Seattle is just as divided within its own issues in there and and I you know everyone keeps thinking we just have to everyone has to go further and further down this road of individualism and I I've stepped away from that view in a like that's one of the values of having been out of the US for 5 years mm. is it, it it's sort of like when I left Mormonism it took me for 3 years I said I hadn't really left I'm just getting a different vantage point so I could turn around and look at it and judge it and I feel that way about the US now and you know that being back there last year for covid to be honest made me not ever really want to be there again a place like Seattle is beautiful it's a beautiful city and all this money and I now see it as completely empty Mm. and void of real human warmth and caring and I I mean that on all sides left and right because everyone is sort of on this same again, this is enlightenment theory and I feel like we've hit this vortex of like it's just accelerating uh, from here on out and I think um, it's like taking a fish out of water And we keep looking for ways to prop that fish up, saying, you know, we'll build him a suit that he can walk in on land and we'll do this, but uh, Mm. why don't you just put him back in water? Mm. And so the project is a way for me, uh, because I believe that, you know, there have been lots of communes and everything that have tried these things, but I think most of them have lacked uh, rigorous understanding of the social tools that we used to take for granted that help build trust amongst the group. Mm. And the project is about b- doing that. Mm.
2: Yeah, you know, talking about this demonization, and you mentioned communes, and, you know, a lot of people listening to this will say, ah, oh, you know, f- fucking communes didn't work. That's all silly hippie bullshit. But I read an interesting... I was reading a, a story in The New Yorker, and it was about the commune movement of the 19th century when they were springing up all over the place. And the, the author went back and looked at the history of communes in the United States and and found how many had started and how quickly they ended and and some are still persisting sure. to this day, right? right. The Amish, for yeah. example started, right. the Quakers, the Shakers you know, all these different um, the Oneida Colony and so on and what the author found, I don't remember if it was a man or a woman, but the point was that the rate of The failure rate of communes in the United States is roughly equivalent to the failure rate of new corporations in the United States. Sure. But nobody ever says, oh, startup companies, that that never works. Oh, corporations, that's just silly businessman bullshit. You know, it's like, it's the way things are framed is
4: so pernicious and sneaky. Well, it's with everything within our culture. um, I've come to start saying, Normal is a cult, yeah. And most people don't get what I because again, it's yeah. just what? I what are you talking it. about?
2: Immediately,
4: normal yeah, it's is all a cult. It's, it's from the the vantage point at which you're judging everything else without looking back at your own right. viewpoint and how hard it is. You know, people say, "Well, a cult's a place you can't leave." Try leaving Western culture,
3: yeah.
4: Like, and try doing that within Western culture, right? Living differently, you know. Yeah. That's those are. Right. Some hard rules to
2: break. Yeah. Can I just buy a piece of land and, um, you know, build a house and not pay property tax on it and not have to grow my own food and people just leave me alone? Nope. Nope. You can't do that. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So are there examples in this research that you're doing, or I should say what are the best examples of of groups that you consider to be successful and models for, you know, something that's admirable, that isn't well, us-against-them kind of mentality. It's funny,
4: um, in fact, I've got this chapter slated out to write about this. Again, I look, I give all the props in the world to the early communes and other communes. One, I, I do take issue with them all generally trying to be agrarian in the fact that in my view, and lots of people's views, agrarianism is sort of what accelerated our our split into individualism. But I digress. Ironically, you know who I think of because I, I actually don't think that these I just don't think these communities exist anymore. I, you know, mm-hmm. I joined a co housing group in Seattle, my first wife and I, in uh, a co housing group to build a twenty four unit condo thing together, and we were part of this for two years. We invested, and for two years we. Tried to work through committees. To everything had to be consensus. Mm. Everything, the color of the paint on the walls. We had to reach 100% consensus in order to move forward. And after two years, that just burned us out. Like it was just yeah. completely untenable. But you know, they eventually got built, and they painted them beige. It was the joke. They ended up <laughs> painting them beige. Like it was. They yeah. they literally did. <laughs> so I don't. I just don't think we have these models, and I don't yeah. think we know how to do it. Right. Um, but the two, there's two examples I come back to that I think are part way down that road Weight Watchers and Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm. You know, they, let's take Alcoholics Anonymous, right? They don't, you come in and you have to accept some core beliefs and you have to follow certain values and certain rituals and lean on each other. Like, to me, there's a way in which it shows the power of what groups can do. And so if, if you t- took those same ideas, similar ideas for whatever issue it is you want to build in your life, I think they're, they're, too, they're not exactly what I would say because they're so narrowly focused, but those are two examples that I, I think capture a little bit of what it means to be in committed community so can you be in you can be in several different groups at the
2: same time right you can be in a group that's focused you can be in AA and you can also be in a community group and a family group and all that where does family fit into this tribalism that you're looking at well so
4: i it, in my model in what i'm building for example I say nothing about romantic relationships. In fact, and of course, this is an issue that we talk about a lot. I, I personally believe we have to decouple our sense of community from passion and romance. Pun intended. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I just think it's the most, I mean, I guess this is a good, a good example. Like, I think monogamy probably worked better in a context of large supportive extended family Mm. you were just right you were just one piece of a much larger puzzle right but the more we've whittled that away whittled that away whittled that away and we've and you now have to rely on everything out of the this one bond that was generally in our culture built on passion and romance Mm. i just think it's a it's a ridiculous thing to do and also we haven't talked much about story because story becomes a big part of the tribe but Netflix has this new feature called play something if you were to go on Netflix and just shuffle and play something they're going to show you a show and that show is going to tell you all the ways in which we're fucked up right now we're telling each other the stories about it not working like most of our stories are about divorced families and split up families and affairs and ways Mm. things don't work like we're telling us we're tell our stories are telling us exactly I think what's wrong, but we've gotten to a point where I say we consume our stories like junk food. They're just, you know, they're like the Doritos or whatever that. But we- isn't that just the the requirements of drama?
2: You know, Shakespeare wasn't writing about happy, relaxed families, and
4: no. But but this is the point: is Shakespeare had a moral viewpoint? Hmm. He was writing. Like, he would write a story with an idea of a moral that he wanted to tell. Mm. And now, I think, as most of our stories are written from a corporate shareholders viewpoint. Mm. And I think they're exploiting human emotion. Like, they're tapping into human emotion. You know, the movie Love Actually, right? Like, I think, I think our desire to be part of a community is so strong and the only thing we have left to do that is monogamous marriage and corporations are exploiting that desire you know like to sell movies now right i mean and it's it's the feedback loop that's teaching us well this is what a marriage is supposed to be and it should be perfect like this or the even a divorce this is the way a divorce should be and the way we should hate each other and the way we should fight with lawyers but it's not it doesn't start in the way shakespeare started like I think generally stories are getting written and the stories we're consuming right now are written to shareholders for shareholders' needs by exploiting human needs and selling stories that humans will like and mm. you know, they're gonna test that movie and if it doesn't they're not gonna release it, right? They're right. gonna see how it and and I I just think the way story is being used now, um and and still, I would say it's ironic because I do think it's parroting back to us the problems that exist. It's interesting
2: when there's um, a crack in that, in that uh, wall that you're talking about, that, that connection between you know, the story that's being presented and the corporate interests that are behind it. Um, you just watched this Chappelle thing the other night, yeah, and everybody's pointing out that on Rotten Tomatoes the critic score is 43 and the popular score is 98 or something. Sure, and so it's like obviously, you know, the the elite uh, artsy fartsy intellectual woke critics are looking at that and saying this guy's you know Cro Magnon ignorant, you know, uh, transphobic, etc. But everybody else is looking at it and saying, "No, that that was funny. He's a comedian, and that was funny, and he wasn't. That didn't seem mean to me. I don't. I don't get it. um
4: I wonder if that's a, like a glimmer of hope." Well, know? so it's funny you bring that up, and it. I'll give you a correlation back to my political work. You know, the left likes to talk about the people. We're working for the people, and you can do all sorts of polls, like. Say you want to run a political campaign, I can do a poll and ask all the people what their opinion is of an issue, but and a lot of people will have strong opinions, but that's very different than the people who are actually going to turn out on election day right. and cast that vote. Right. Right? So you can come into it and say, Oh look, this candidate has seventy eight percent support for this idea and that idea blah sure. and then you run the campaign. Right. Right. And then it comes down to who votes. So maybe there's a glimmer of hope there, but it, but you also might find that the corporations are better tapped into who's actually going to spend money. Who's actually yeah. going to, you yeah.
2: know, who can we reach? Well, Netflix seems to believe, that, I mean, they're making a lot of money on that special. So in this particular case, the corporation agrees with the public.
4: Yeah, and I, look, I, don't, I for example, I don't think Netflix is full of evil people who are in fact, I think part of the problem is that they almost have no agenda at all and except for making money right yeah and and of course, you could say that's what's more democratic than that, right providing the viewers with exactly what they want right The problem is we live in an age now where through psychoanalysis and data like these corporations know us better than we know ourselves now. And I mean that literally. Because most humans don't even, most humans don't have a real sense of the biological drives and their DNA and their, like, the things that really shape them. Like most humans don't get why I did X, Y, or Z.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: The corporations know now. Right. right like that's you know starting with the advent you know the end of mad men right when right uh, but from there it's it's gotten
2: ridiculous i would trace it back much earlier to the 20s edward bernays who was the father of modern advertising sure. and sigmund freud's nephew
4: right yeah but i think we're i think we've crossed this threshold though where the the amount of money that facebook spends on keeping your eyeballs on a certain thing like it's you know it's this has been ridiculous for me my whole life but and we don't talk about it that there's there are adults sitting in cubicles trying to figure out how to hook my kids on something right like that's crazy yeah i I mean these and i bet you these adults have kids of their own Right. In fact, in my book, a lot I, of
2: a lot of those adults, those engineers, don't let their
4: kids use right Instagram. I in yeah. my book, I write this this story about my grandparents and it, the simpler time and the w- simple way they lived in Idaho. And he was a volunteer fireman, and we'd go visit, and then we'd do this whole caravan with all the extended family, and we'd like boondock out by some river, and we'd fish. Mm. Fishing was their passion, but it, because he was a fireman. He taught all of his grandkids like all day long there there would be stories and i'd say in the book this gets back to the earlier point that all the stories even then had a purpose like they all drove us to a better understanding of ourselves and of our family and the family history and what drove us together but he would he would tell us the story of smoky the bear right and smoky the bear this and he he was teaching us fire safety while and we would build these big bonfires at night and he would let us all light a part of it and I write in the book, imagine if he was a representative of a corporation selling Smokey the Bear teddy bears, how different the way he told that story to us would be. Like if if his benefit from that story, the takeaway was that he got to sell more Smokey the Bear teddy bears, like that would fundamentally and radically change that whole interaction. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's essentially where we're at. Even, and I, again, I don't, It's, I can talk about doom and gloom like this, but in a certain way, I don't necessarily condemn it all. I think this hyper individualism that we're experiencing and part of this is I think the consumerist, you know, explosion of individualist taste and blah. Uh, In some ways I think it was necessary and good and probably unavoidable given the trajectory we've been on. And so the question now is, and I I don't know the answer to this and this is central to my project. So belonging to community prior to now was what I call a given. You had to. Either you know, for family reasons, for political reasons, or because you believed in a God who would kill you and send mm. you to hell if you didn't. Mm. We're now at a point at which we have to choose to do that. Mm. And that's a much mm. that's a much weaker motivation. To be able to form these communities. It's,
2: it's weaker, but it increases the chance that the community is going to actually be responsive to your needs, right?
4: Because they don't and, have a captive audience. Sure. And that's so part of my project. What I say is the community should give you should give 50 percent of your life to the community and 50 percent of your life to yourself and that the two can't exist apart. And I the model for the whole project says, I am your foundation. You are my extension and that's i think the part that old community misses valuing the extension of the ideas mm. that can be filtered into that group by sending those individuals out empowering them as themselves mm. to find new things to come in and renew right. the community right and i think that's why religions die. like it's it's going to last for another 1000 years but the old model religions uh, don't do that right. like mormonism had no way for me to bring my own ideas into it. Right. And how crazy is that? You're sending 75,000 kids out into the world. Right. But you're and, not interested in what they learn. And not listening anything that they learn. Yeah. But on the corollary, those 75,000 kids are not listening to anything that somebody there could teach them. I mean, mm. imagine the arrogance of me as a 19-year-old going to a Baptist minister in Puerto Rico, which I did, telling him what's what. <laughs> You know? But Mormon's got 75,000 of those kids out in the world doing that.
2: Yeah. So. That's funny. Timo, we got to do more of these, man. Uh, When you... I mean, your project sounds like something that will never be finished, but when you reach a point where you've got yeah. a book to sell or or something
4: there's a little bit uh, if anyone's interested i have a website called storyofexistence.com mm. that won't make any sense to anyone who goes there because <laughs> it's sort of in pieces still great, great sales pitch there buddy uh, but it's a way to you know if you're interested reach out and yeah what's and, it called uh, secret of existence story of story. existence storyofexistence.com
2: <laughs> all right thanks buddy you bet let's
4: go have some dinner all right sounds good to me
2: Hope you enjoyed that conversation with my boy, Timo. I sure did. Um, Don't forget to check out omgs.com forward slash Chris Ryan. Get 10% off all your sexual curiosity needs. Uh, Excellent for anybody who is interested in women's sexual pleasure. Whether you're a woman looking to maximize your own... Or someone else's or a dude looking to maximize a woman's sexual pleasure, whatever you are, wherever you're coming from, if that's where you're trying to go. And, hey, who doesn't want to maximize women's sexual pleasure? Come on now. This is one of the great natural resources available to human beings. Let's maximize it. All right. omgs.com forward slash Chris Ryan for 10% off. Thanks, everybody. Hope you're having a beautiful end of 2021 or beginning of 2022. Whenever you're listening to this, wherever you are, I hope things are going well for you and you're riding out the storm. All right. Catch you next time. All right. So apparently I haven't been pushing the shirts and signed books and stuff enough recently because my mom said orders are falling off. So here we are. Mom, tell people what's available for this special holiday season.
0: Well, we, of course, have lots of civilized to death shirts in all sizes and still quite a few sex at dawn shirts in all sizes. Now, some sizes are limited in the other categories, but I'm sure we can find something that would fit you.
2: (laughs) And what else do they have? Are there books? There's the tangentially reading book?
0: Yes, we have the Sex at Dawn book signed by the author himself. We have Civilized to Death books signed by the author.
2: And will you sign the books as well, Mom, for a a low, low price?
0: Oh, sure. I'll write anything. (laughs) All right. As Chris once told our daughter when she tried to forge a letter to... uh, her school. You should have had mom do that. She'll write anything. <laughs> we also have beer coozies or cozies or whatever. Right. And we have stickers and decals.
2: So get those orders in. Give mom something to do. Give her a reason to go talk to the ladies at the post office.
5: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're going to say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're going to die one day Your body is not When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal If you want to be free, say